So I was asked just before I came in by one of our members who keeps coming every week. I don't know if I really mentioned it specifically last time, but it's a nice way to begin the talk with the story of this man who was very, he was a young man, quite wealthy, well-educated and quite handsome. And so he decided it was time for him to get married. And so he looked in the mirror and thought, I'm such a wonderful guy. I want to marry the most perfect girl in the whole of Australia. And he started off in Sydney and there he found this girl, started dating her. She looked very, very beautiful, almost like, like a model, you know, to be able to go and model clothes or be photographed for the front cover of magazines. But after going out with her a couple of times, he soon realized that, you know, she couldn't cook. You know, she'd order some food and when she tried to cook something, it was terrible food. And so he thought, well, she may look good, but I can't have a relationship with her. She's not perfect enough. So then she went to Melbourne and in Melbourne she found another, another girl. He went out with her a couple of times. She was even more beautiful than a girl from Sydney and also that she was a really good cook. In fact, she owned her own restaurants. And you know, she would cook the food there and also just do the recipes. It's a beautiful food. And so he thought maybe this might be the girl of his dreams, a perfect girl. So he went out with her a couple of times, but then found you couldn't have a conversation with her. She was stupid. <laughs> so I can't sort of go out with her or marry her. So then he came to the place he should have come first of all to Perth. <laughs> and there at a certain Buddhist society in Nolamara. <laughs> he met the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen in his life. And she had three restaurants she was running, all you know, really high class, you know, four star, five star. And then she had three PhDs as well. She was brilliant. So straight away he thought, I've met the most perfect girl you could possibly get. And then he proposed to her and she turned him down. You know why? Because she was looking for the perfect guy. <laughs> and he wasn't. <laughs> but that's the, I think, I don't know if I told that last week or not, but I promised I'll tell it this week anyway, so there it was. But why do we judge people? Well, that's nothing to do with if you want a relationship with somebody. Because sometimes if you look at yourself, how many women in this room here think they're not beautiful enough? <laughs> Is that right? 
the partner, that she's she beautiful. Is he perfect? Yeah, okay. <laughs> that lasts for a while. <laughs> but but anyway, why do we judge each other? Is that what love is all about? It's very easy to get enamored by someone because they always look perfect. This was one of the Singaporean supporters who told me this story when she got married and her husband was taken aside by her father and the father told you know, his new son-in-law that you probably love my daughter so much and he, and he said, oh yes, she's so perfect, she's so beautiful, she's such a good cook, she's intelligent, even the way she picks her nose is charming. <laughs> said, yes, that's what it's like when you first fall in love. But, he said, I just want to give you some advice. In two or three years, you'll start to see the faults and defects in my daughter. I know they're there, I gave birth to her. I not gave birth, but I was a dad for so much a long time. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in two or three years, you'll start to see her faults and defects. But when you start to see those faults and defects, always remember this piece of advice. If my daughter hadn't got those faults and defects to begin with, she would have married someone much better than you. <laughs> and I kind of like that story <laughs> because there's no such being in this world who's perfect. There's not, so looking for the perfect girl, the perfect man, the perfect meditation, the perfect insight, the perfect Buddhist society, the perfect position on the committee. It doesn't exist. Ajahn Shah used to make that uh, statement and he would keep on repeating it and when we were like looking for some sort of happiness that didn't exist, he said that was like looking for a, a tortoise with a moustache. Have you ever seen a tortoise with a moustache? Just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just you haven't found it yet. So what many people do, they spend their whole lives looking for a tortoise with a moustache. <laughs> Realising such things just don't exist. And that becomes the nature of you know, the suffering. What the Buddha was talking about. It's asking from this world something which doesn't exist, which it can't give you. It's easy to be sort of like romantic, like somebody asks me, is there such a thing as eternal love? Love forever. And I've seen that because sometimes as a monk, you know, you give marriage blessings. And then marriage blessings, those two partners you know, fully in love, man and woman, I love you forever, darling. And if it's a Buddhist marriage ceremony, I love you even in the next life. And sometimes a partner says, darling, don't you haven't never heard of till death us do part? 
You mean in the next life as well? <laughs> That's why, you know, we have a Buddhist tradition that if ever you offer something to a monk, and this is like very Thai, but I think maybe in Sri Lanka they do the same. So, you know, after the, the wedding, they offer things, you know, to the monk, but they have to do it together. It may be just a bowl of rice, but both have to hold it and both have to give it. As a symbol, they're making good karma together. So they'll be together for such a long time. And some of these people, you know, they get married in time, eventually they come to Perth. And then I tell that to the husband, usually an Australian husband married to saw a Thai girl. And I said, well, if you offer it together, that means you'll be together again in your next life. And then the husband takes his hand away. <laughs> One nice enough, thank you. Well, remember this other, he was, I don't know, Malaysian Chinese lady and her partner, many, many years they were married, died. So I did the funeral ceremony for them. And as you may know, over in Bodhinyana Monastery, people can sometimes put their ashes in the wall around the monastery. They get a little box of ashes, we dig a hole in the, the wall and put the ashes in there, put a plaque over it. And I'd just done this ceremony for this uh, man who died, and his wife was there, she was very old. And I did ask her, it's a silly thing to ask, I shouldn't have done this, but it was funny. I said, should I reserve the place underneath for you? And she looked at me and said, no. I've been underneath him all my life. I want to go to the other side of the monastery. However far away you can go. <laughs> and she died about three months later, and so I made sure that she went a long way away from her. <laughs> <laughs> it was in the war. They're both in the war, but a long way away from each other. <laughs> but anyway, is that disappointing to hear such things? Now what we're doing here is understanding the nature of life. We have a wonderful time together but it never lasts forever. It's called anicca, and you don't have to be upset about that. All of the time that we can enjoy our life, we can enjoy our relationship, we can enjoy the people we love, we can enjoy even like going on to the Buddhist society, becoming a committee member. You don't have to get overstressed about it because it doesn't last. Instead, we understand that life is like those concerts. I'm going back to the, my father's death simile again, which I did say last week, I can remember saying that. That when my father died, only 16, I never felt sad, even though I loved him very much. And I, of course, I uh, felt exactly the same as when I went to great concerts, or even like movies, or something wonderful I'd seen. And I mention this because my father died when I was only 16, as I mentioned. I was a boy, and boys do not emotionally mature at that age. And I couldn't understand why I never felt grief or sadness. As my father, and I loved him, and he was dead. And it took a while. That's one of the advantages of being a monk or a nun, 
you know, you find you have more time, especially those early years as a monk or a nun. And then those times you have to meditate, you know, just to reflect on life. One of the things I reflected on is, why didn't I feel grief? Is there something wrong with me? And when I looked at that emotion, which I could remember, as your own father, it's not a passing thing, it was really powerful. I never felt any grief at his death. And when I focused on how I felt, which I could recall very easily, I noticed it was so, so similar to the feelings which I felt after a great concert. Those great musical concerts I, I went to. I already mentioned just going to the first concert of Led Zeppelin and going to see Rod Stewart. There was only six of us went to see him. And going to, I didn't mention, I think, one of the early concerts of Deep Purple. You know, and that was there, just they were second in the bill at that time. And not just those, but some other great concerts in this world. I even mentioned today that somebody asked me, is boxing good? Is it bad karma to watch boxing? But you know, I watched a boxing, it wasn't actually a boxing match, it was just uh, one of these boxers was training. It was Muhammad Ali. He was called Cassius Clay at the time. And he was fighting in, in London. And I was only 11 years of age. And somebody told me that he was training in this place called the White City, very close to where I lived. So I went there with my mate. We were hanging around there for about, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And his big, I mean huge Afro-Americans came. And when they came, I just asked, any of you Cassius Clay? He said, yeah, he is. And it was them. So I said, can I have your autograph, mister? <laughs> and he was so kind, I always remember that encounter, just really nice man. He wasn't sort of fronting up for, for photographs or newspapers, it was just a little kid, just asking for his autograph. And then he said, would you like to come and watch me spar? You know, that's the train. Oh yeah. And so they took us inside, so saw saw you know, the Muhammad Ali to be trained. A very nice guy, I always remember that. But all of those nice encounters which you had as a young man, especially the concerts, they made it very clear. Once a concert was finished, I, always, I never cried after a great concert. Never once. I felt I'd never be able to see such a great performance again. But how lucky I was to have been there at the time. The sense of appreciation, gratitude. That's how I felt. And that's how I felt about many things in life once they pass. I haven't lost anything. I've actually gained all those years I had with my father. Whenever you know, someone dies, or a relationship passes, thank you. Thank you, partner, for being with me for such a long time. It was wonderful knowing you that way. Because all those partnerships, they do eventually finish, even when somebody dies. You can't die together as husband and wife, otherwise the police will start to investigate what you've been doing. 
Someone goes first. But go with my blessing, you say. We've had a wonderful time together. Thank you so much. Okay, naughty joke. <laughs> I can't resist. There was this um, husband and uh, he was on his deathbed. His wife was just looking after him and the wife was, the husband was saying, no, darling, you know, I'm about to die soon, so I really should confess that you know, you've been such a wonderful wife to me, but sometimes I haven't been such a good husband to you. Even just, you know, the mistress I had, I never told you about her, but you still were so kind to me. And the wife said, darling, I know. That's why I poisoned you. <laughs> I'm not encouraging that, by the way. <laughs> Otherwise, it could be in trouble. <laughs> but no, sometimes we ask from life what it cannot give us, and that causes the problem. This is the reality of a relationship, and of course, it's not the relationship with even, well, even that relationship with your kids if you have kids. Please don't ask too much of your kids. It's a big problem for parents. You want your kids to do well in life, but sometimes you put so much stress on them. You know, to try and do well in college or university. And I still remember just you know, seeing such quotes. This was in Cambridge University. I was seeing the quotes, the graffiti written on the wall of that university. Exams kill by degrees. Exams aren't really a good way of testing a person's intelligence. And also, they create judgments, which sometimes people live by. They believe. It's one of those judgments, again, please excuse me for repeating stories, but we always get some new people in here. And also the old people, they've forgotten what I said last week, so it's still remember. <laughs> and that was the story of the two classes. I learned this because I was a school teacher. And some of the stuff which I learned as a school teacher never made any sense to me as a school teacher. One of those things was grading kids. You're in class A, you're in class B, you're in class C. You're clever, you can go to university, you can't. It made no sense at all. And one of the reasons why was this experiment which was done, the two classes of kids at the end of the year, they were examined. The results of the exam were not published. The child who came first was assigned to the same class the next year as a child who came uh, fifth and sixth Sorry, no, fourth and fifth, eighth and ninth, twelfth and thirteenth. They went in the same class. Kids who came second and third, uh, sixth and seventh, tenth and eleventh, they went to t into another class. So they were split equally. And they were given, there was two psychologists and the principal of the school 
were the only ones in on this secret an experiment. They gave them equally good teachers who knew nothing about you know, what was happening. Equally good classrooms. The only difference was they called one class A and the other one class B. It didn't mean that class A was better than class B. It was exactly the same on the previous year's exam. But imagine that your kid comes home and said, I'm in class A next year. And then you start to think, you're in class A? You hardly did any homework. The teacher was always complaining about you, but well done, son. <laughs> Have a bit of extra pocket money or some. <laughs> you give them rewards. And even the teachers thought those people in class A were more intelligent. And so they expected more out of them. They taught them at a higher level. And the poor kids who were in class B. You're in class B. I told you weren't working hard enough. No watching TV and no internet. You have to study. I want you in class A next time. And even the teachers thought the class B kids were not so smart. But they were exactly the same. But the chilling part of the story was that after one year, when they gave them the end of the year exam again, the children who were assigned to class A performed just as you would expect if they were the top half chosen from the year before. They literally became class A kids. And the ones in class B, which was really more um, worrying, because they thought they were class B, even though they're even from the year before, they became class B kids. So how many of you, because what other people say, you believe it, and you become a class B person? You become a sort of a person who's not intelligent, who's not pretty, who's not smart, who's not athletic, who's not whatever. Just because you believe that, you take that on board and you become it. This is one of the problems we have. And again, please excuse me on this too, but some of the psychological problems people have, ADHD, I usually, I've got it right this time, I think. I usually say ACDC or something. <laughs> Some of the psychological problems which people are assigned as, you've got this, do you really have that? Can you actually put all these symptoms and give it a name like that? For what I saw as a school teacher and as a monk, that we might give people these labels, and if they believe it, they become it. They live up to it. That's one of the problems. Are you really ADHD? Are you really schizophrenic? Are you really... I'll, I'll go back to that professor in Singapore, mental health. He was professor of schizophrenia unit. When I asked him, how do you treat schizophrenia in Singapore? He said, I don't. And he was a professor of schizophrenia, the guy responsible for the 
the whole unit in the mental health department. He said, I teach the other part of the patient, which is not recognizing, just that that's all they are. They're more than that. And of course, that's what I did with blooming criminals in jail. I, I said, I've never seen a criminal in a jail. I've seen a human being who did a crime. Totally different. Which means if you call a person a criminal, they can become a criminal. Most of them do. That's no way to get um, beyond that designation or someone's done a fault and they have to be called a criminal for the rest of their life. Of course they're not. So anyway, this is where sometimes we judge way too fast, way too quick. Love it sometimes, some of the people who became great teachers, great enlightened beings in the time of the Buddha. One who stands out was Angulimala, who killed some people say 999, that seems a little bit much, but probably 99 human beings. A serial killer. Eventually the Buddha converted him. Interesting, what happened there? I often tell this in retreats. The, uh, Angulimala was actually running after the Buddha, trying to kill him. And no matter how fast Angulimala ran, the Buddha used some psychic power so the Angulimala couldn't catch him. So this Angulimala, the serial killer, shouted out to the Buddha, Stop! Stop! And the Buddha turned around and said, I've already stopped. You stop. It wasn't just stopping running. It was stopping the way the mind just tries to do things, judge things, change things, improve things, stop. And there was such a powerful, unexpected command by the Buddha that Gurimana did that. He stopped. He became a monk and stopped all those what we call defilements, became fully enlightened by stopping. It reminds me of that novice in Ajahn Chah's monastery, just a novice who was listening to one of Ajahn Chah's sermons which was going on and on and on and on. And he said, I'm just a little novice. You know, I didn't sort of elect to come and stay here, just I had no place else to go. So this is what, but these senior monks, they could listen, but I need to go to bed. I'm tired. He's only like 12 or 13 or something. And so this little novice started thinking, when is Ajahn Chah going to stop? When is he going to stop? When is he going to stop? And that became repeated in his brain again and again and again. Until then the novice thought, had an insight, changed things around. Instead of when is Ajahn Chah going to stop, he thought, when am I going to stop? And that's when this little novice stopped. He got into one of the really deep meditations, one of the jhanas, 
just that simply, but just saying, I will stop. Not doing anything. And went so deep that when he came out of meditation, Ajahn Shah had finished the, the talk a long time earlier. All the monks had done the chanting to end the meditate, end the talk, and they'd all packed up their things and went back to their cottages, or their huts, to rest. He'd been sitting really still all that time, couldn't hear a thing. It was the morning time. He'd missed the morning arms round. He didn't mind, he wasn't hungry. He just got into the most beautiful meditation for the first time in his life by stopping. It's one of the reasons why when people say, you know, you can see in places like Australia, there's many crosses around. Where are the symbols of Buddhism uh, in Australia? You can see the symbols of Buddhism and meditation in Australia on every street corner. It's called the stop sign. <laughs> and if you remember to notice the stop sign, you see the stop signs, not stopping the cars. See if you can stop and just be here. Well, if you can just be here and stop, it means one of the other things you're doing is because you're not judging, you're not controlling. The connection between judging and controlling is very, very uh, clear. It's why when you judge people, then you can control them. When you don't judge them, it's impossible to control them. It's one of the reasons why, as a Buddhist monk, sometimes you live literally off the grid because I have no um, no driver's license, no marriage certificate, no sort of home agreement, don't own any property, I don't have a credit card, I don't have a bank account, I don't have any superannuation, I have no savings, I have so few possessions that sometimes when you go and apply for something from the government, they say, you don't exist. That's what happened to me, the whole story, when I applied for a Commonwealth Seniors Healthcare Card. I had to go, they said, we have to prove you exist, so please come and bring your ID. I went over to the centre care office over in Armadale, and they said, can I see all these forms of ID? I said, I don't have any. So, and they said, you don't exist. They hate it when you don't exist. <laughs> because you know, they can't control you. So, do you exist? <laughs> what details of your life have the authorities got? But anyway, I do have two passports, one Brit British passport, one Australian passport. They're not supposed to accept both, but they did, just to get rid of me. So anyway, because <laughs> sometimes you create too many problems, you don't fit in the boxes. But that's what happens when you can judge a person, then you can start controlling them. And that's one thing which we just don't do in Buddhism. Judge, 
and control is one of the reasons why any one of you, you come in here, do we take your names? Do we say, I'll just leave your email address here. We don't ask for any money. You just come in if you wish. You can leave if you wish at any time. It's total lack of control. The only reason you come in here is you find something interesting and find it peaceful and feel that you are made welcome, which is important. It's a kindness, which is the opposite of judgment. And one of the reasons why you don't judge also is that sometimes I've judged a person and afterwards you realize just how stupid that was. On a retreat which I gave in Jhanagrove some years ago, this guy came into one of my retreats. I was just helping out with the registration. 60 people were on the retreat. Uh, helping with the registration. This guy said he was on the retreat. But honestly, if you'd taken one look at him, you'd think this is the last person you'd expect on a meditation retreat. He had big curly hair, and as I say to many people, he was wearing Australian national dress. A dirty singlet, shorts, and, uh, and flip-flops, sandals. Australian national dress. And if, <laughs> I, sometimes I can't resist jokes, but this was by that Vietnamese comic over in Melbourne, who was said when he was at school, he heard about IQ, so he went home and asked his dad, what does IQ mean? His dad said, if you've got an IQ of, say, 100, you're kind of average. 120, you're intelligent. 140, you can go to university. If you've only got an IQ of 80, you'll struggle. And if you've only got an IQ of 60, you're so stupid, you can't even tie up your own shoelaces. And that's when the kid said, is that why most Australians wear thongs? <laughs> He was an Australian comic, good on him. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> but anyway, why do we judge people? Because some of the ideas that just because you can't type your own shoelaces, you've got an IQ of 140 or, not 140, 60 or something, does that make you stupid? Absolutely not. You have... Um, abilities in other areas of life, not just to solve some problems. And I've seen many people who sometimes, because you don't fit in and you're judged, and that you feel afterwards that you just, you know, you're stigmatized, you don't belong, there's something wrong with you. And of course, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just different, that's all. And it's up to our society to make a place with for you rather than to judge and exclude you. That's really important, I always thought. So that's one of the reasons why, as being a preceptor, I ordained monks and nuns. And when I first came here, you could only ordain uh, men. And then... One of the first exceptions to the rule, which I did, was to ordain gay people. One of these men, he was a well-known gay, 
And uh, it was the Thai law at the time, you weren't allowed to ordain someone who was gay. But I was in Australia, so I thought, I'm not going to follow that one. And the person I ordained became a wonderful monk, still a monk. I won't say who he is without his permission, but many of you know. A very, very kind and sensitive monk. He's not the only one who was gay, I've ordained. And then the next one I ordained, he was schizophrenic. And he's also a monk. Many of you have visited him and seen him. I won't say who he is, don't want to embarrass him. You know he's on clozapine. But you would never realize he was a clinical schizophrenic, a beautiful monk. So I tend not to judge. And then of course, you know, the ordaining women. My goodness, why not? The Buddha ordained women, it's there. So he did that as well. You tend not to judge. And if a person wants to, why say no to them? And that's also how I meditate. Not to judge my meditation. When you don't judge your meditation, you find it so much easier, so much peace, more peaceful. Every part of the meditation you kind of enjoy. You don't think some meditations uh, just need to be eradicated, other meditations are good. You look at the whole lot, this is what's happening right now. And you make peace with it. It's a strange thing. Because I've been teaching meditation, but okay, I've been teaching meditation since before I was a monk. I mentioned to many of you, in 1973, I think, or 74, I taught meditation every morning at a school in England, uh, just for one week, to 600, 650 kids from 11 to 17. Just a simple meditation on the breath. And that's, a, I think, one of the first times that's ever been done in any school in the UK. And the first time I did that, it was the morning assembly at school, if you remember those things they used to have in schools. And after teaching a simple breath meditation, the first time even, all these kids were sitting in front of me, 650 of them, and they all cooperated and gave me an ovation afterwards. They clapped. And just even the principal, the other teachers said they'd never seen that before. I remember one of them asked me, what would you have done if one of those kids had started giggling? None of them did. I just haven't thought about that. And that's actually why it worked. And a great positive mind. But all that time, you don't judge sort of meditation. Sometimes my meditation is beautiful, sometimes it's more tough. But you don't judge anything. You let it be. Even with your mind and with your body, whether you're healthy in your body or whether you're at peace in your mind or agitated, it is very much the relationship you have with your mind, the relationship you have with your body. That is more important than what your body actually is. 
can you make peace with your physical health? You may have, like last week I was teaching in the Cancer Support Association, Solaris it's called these days, on Tuesday. If you've got cancer, you haven't got cancer in remission, it's stage one, two, three, four, I don't care. It's the relationship you have with that disease is what's going to make you healthy or what's going to kill you. And I first learned that from this oncologist over in Malaysia. She was about to retire and she said, now I can tell with 90% accuracy, patients who come into my um, consulting room, I know whether they're going to pass away or they're going to survive simply on their attitude to that cancer, simply on the attitude to the health, simply on the attitude to addictions, whether you can get through them or not, simply on the attitude to what's happening in your meditation. Even Angulimala could get fully enlightened. Even a crazy lady who came into a talk one day totally naked she was out of her mind, traumatized by the loss of her parents, her um, husband and her two children on the same day. That was Patachara. And she became not just fully enlightened, not just a great um, bhikkhuni enlightened being, but also one of the greatest teachers. All these things which happened to you, it's the relationship you have with them, what they teach you, and how you make use of them, and how you grow, is the most important. So it's one of the reasons why, please don't try to improve. Try to understand instead, and embrace yourself. Open the door of your heart to yourself as you are. Open the door of your mind to your meditation, as it is. It's called making peace. Making peace, not controlling. I've done this so many times, but here it comes again. How can I make water perfectly still? Not by controlling it, by letting it be. By putting it down, and it becomes still all by itself. A lot of times, you may argue with me, but I've seen it. When you stop worrying about sickness, you let it be. That tension which you put on your body is removed and you've got a much better chance of healing. And in your mind, you may have lots of problems from the past. Don't try and improve. That's being negative. Let it be. Leave it alone. And when you make peace with your mind, the mind makes peace with you, and you soon get so content and happy. Learn how to be content and easily satisfied, and then you bliss out in deep meditation. And then you learn, you see just how actually easy meditation is. 
when you stop trying to control it. I've, I know it's already time. I was going to. F okay, I'll finish off with a driverless bus simile. Many years ago, before Google invented driverless vehicles, I invented this driverless bus simile. It's like many of you come to centers like this, you have difficulties and problems in life. And so you want to sort of try and improve yourselves, have more happiness and less suffering. So you come here to find the cause of that suffering and unhappiness. Why you know you should get more pleasure out of life? Why do, why do things always go wrong? So you realize it's some of your choices in life. So you want to find out how, what actually makes these choices and how you can find what we call the will and teach it to make wise choices in life. And so eventually through meditation you find what I call the bus driver's seat inside your mind the source of this thing which you recognize as your will. You know what happens when you actually find that bus driver's seat? You find it's empty. There's no one there. It's all cause and effect. Conditioning. So that means afterwards you go back to your seat in the bus and you stop complaining. You stop criticizing. There's no one to criticize to. It's an empty bus driver's seat who's running your life. Peace at last. Thank you for listening. <laughs> okay. Okay. Some questions, comments or complaints. You can complain if you wish. That's what I think I said even last week. I said at the, the Solaris Cancer Center as well, that's why in Buddhist temples you're not allowed to wear shoes. Then you've got nothing to throw at me. <laughs> you can't throw socks. Okay, we, we got any questions from the internet? <laughs> Another joke or something. Okay, you've probably heard all these jokes recently. But, oh, you've got a, a question. Oh, well, if you've heard about, you know, because it's a school term has started, about the mother who could never get her son to get up in time to go to school. You don't know that one? Okay, some of you do. About, you know, school term. And uh, mother was trying to get her son to get up to go to school, beginning of the school term. And the son would not get out of bed. And so he said, come on, you've got to go to school, son. Why? He said to his mum. Well, you have to go there, but you know, the other kids don't like me, the teachers don't like me, no one likes me at that school, but you have to go. Why? Because you're the principal. <laughs> It makes a lot of sense. 
Oh, you haven't heard it. I thought you'd heard that many times. Okay. What's the question? Okay, yeah. Uh, sorry, I was just saying, I understand the mind and the body are separate and the, and the brain is yeah. separate. Um, but at uh, certain points of our life, our body has an influence over our mind, chemically or hormonally or... or over your brain. Uh, over our brain. Yeah. Okay. That's really fascinating because... You can actually prove that when people have like uneven hypnosis, they access the mind rather than the brain. And sometimes, you know, the body can, because of some injury, uh, they can forget things. And actually, basically, you lose memory. A good example of that is when you have Alzheimer's, you can lose a lot of memory. But when you die, just beforehand, it's like your brain stops, oper stops operating, the mind takes over. And you have what we keep calling, it's got a name now, terminal lucidity. Just before you die, you can remember people. I don't know if that doctor is here today, but one of the doctors who comes here, he came up and said he had an experience of that as a doctor over in one of the hospitals, I think it was Royal Perth. One of his patients you know, was dying so he went to his, her, his bedside and the instructions from the patient was here's a list of my close family members, please give them a call to get me, them to come immediately. So he was calling those um, family members and he got to the guy's daughter, Julia or something. And he was calling Julia, come to the hospital quickly, your father's dying. And that's when the father opened his eyes and said please tell Julie how much I love her. And he closed his eyes and died. And he hadn't been able to speak for, for hours beforehand. He was dying. But that last little time, he had the mind took over rather than the brain and had that lucidity and could actually speak. That's one example of, of many. So that's a bit of it, even um, a bit of information, evidence about just how the mind can sometimes take over. And there's even a few people here, I remember years ago, actually not here, that uh, couple in Perth, they weren't Buddhists, but they came to see us because you know, their young child, second boy, just came out, out of hospital with the mum, just been born, and they asked the older boy, please say goodnight to your brother and the older boy leant over the, the pram and said something like good night Peter and Peter replied back good night Paul he was only a couple of weeks old and of course they were stunned they're not supposed to be able to speak at that time but then uh, Paul said once more good night Peter and Peter said second time good night Paul and they were so confused that's why they came and saw the monks and thought we could understand, yeah, just the baby has been reborn, he's using his mind, not his brain. The brain is not capable of that yet. If anyone else has had experiences like that with their kids, please let me know. You're not crazy, this sometimes happens.
Okay. Okay, the overseas question somehow another computer's not working. Sorry, Ajahn, we're having some problems. Yeah, that's, that's usual. It's All nice right. having problems. It shows that our Buddhist society is not perfect, <laughs> but it's lovable. I know many of the Thai people, you know, I used to speak really perfect Thai when I first came over from Thailand, but because I haven't really practiced it, it's got worse and worse and worse. And so I remember years ago saying, should I take some Thai language lessons so I can become more um, fluent? And they said, no, because when it's not perfect, it's lovable. I really understand that. You don't have to be perfect to be lovable. So don't try and improve yourself all the time. Many of you say that I'm too fat, but the word in Thai is not fat, it's called sombun, mean appropriate to your merit. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> anyway, sometimes if I changed and got really thin, would you want that? Would you want me? To, would you recognize me? I think it's much better to be as I am. I'm happy I am. There's many benefits being like this. I always say, if ever I trip and fall over, I'll never smash my face. My belly will hit the ground first of all and bounce straight up. <laughs> Is that correct? You got any questions there? No, yeah, we do, Ajahn. Oh, you so do? Okay. You asked for a complaint, so we got one. Okay, good. Um, all right. Monks always assume lay people have friends and families in their examples. Huh? I can't hear. It's really strange. My ears kind of block up <laughs> when I hear complaints. <laughs> I, I avoid Dhamma talks because of this. It reminds me of how, how few of me there are and how lonely I am. How can I deal with this? I'm not happy and single but I don't want a relationship either. I want the feeling of longing to disappear so that I don't need any more. I, I think you need to speak a bit louder because I couldn't understand it, honestly. Yeah. All right, the question is, monks always assume lay people have friends and families in their examples. Oh, okay. I avoid Dhamma talks because of this. It reminds me of how few of me there are and how lonely I am. How can I deal with this? I am not happy and single, but I don't want a relationship either. I want the feeling of longing to disappear so that I don't, don't need any more. Okay. Wanting longing to disappear is it's the wanting it's like wanting, wanting to disappear. It cannot work like that. If you say want that story about the man who came to see the monk and he, he was on a cartoon in Jhana Grove and he had this big sign saying, I want to be happy. And the monk said the first problem is the I. Take that out. And the second problem is the want. Take that out. 
And if you take those two words out from I want to be happy, what's left? Happy, yeah. It's the I and the want stops you being happy. So if he wants to get rid of things, they will never go. Make peace with your situation, whoever you are. Open the door of your heart to being single, to being alone. There are many people these days who are alone and they sometimes feel there's something wrong with that. So they just go overboard trying to seek for another partner in life or person in life. But you don't need to. Be respected. Be alone is fine. And as a monk, you know, I, uh, as you all know, I spent six months in total solitude where I never saw another human being for six months. And I never sort of heard the voice of another human being for six months. And I remember when I came out of that retreat, there was many people here who came here. I think you came here, Eddie, at that time. My first talk after I'd come off the six-month retreat. Was that correct, Eddie Koo? Yeah, you were here. A lot of people were very disappointed. They thought I'd be mad. <laughs> With big eyes and big hair and beard. <laughs> but I wasn't. I just had a wonderful time. So the point of the happiness is if you don't have family and friends, fine. Don't ever so sort of stigmatize yourself or think you don't belong because that's your situation. Learn how to make peace with that. Learn how to make peace with that. Just stop criticizing and think that somehow you're different, somehow you don't belong, and stigmatize yourself because of that. Every human being belongs in this world. There are some trees in a paddock which is one tree in the whole paddock. There's no other trees there at all. Fine. We only have one sun in the sky, not two. It's beautiful. Only one moon, which was full a few days ago. Beautiful. You don't have to be two. One is beautiful. That's like being a hermit. Now sometimes that was kind of my goal in life, to being a hermit. And sometimes when I came to Australia, I thought, it's a great opportunity to be a hermit here in Australia. Especially you know, between Perth and Adelaide, you have in the Nullarbor Plain, there's lots of amazing caves underground. And I thought I would go and find one of those caves. There's plenty of water. And you know, maybe you can get some uh, close to a roadhouse, get some food, but live as a hermit there. And then I started to think, what would it be like being a hermit in a cave, living so simply in the Nullarbor? Soon, someone will find you. And because you've been alone for such a time, they think you must be very, very wise. And they'll come and ask you a question. 
and whatever you, they say, if it's something ridiculous, they think, that's very deep, I just haven't understood it yet. <laughs> and then, of course, then somebody will find out about that in the newspapers and they will do an article on you in, I don't know, what are the newspapers or the magazines now? The, the Hermit of the Nullarbor. And once the first article comes out about the Hermit of the Nullarbor, then Channel 7 or Channel 9 will go out there to do an exclusive interview with the Hermit of the Nullarbor. And then because you're not too far away from the road, they'll have lots of tourists who will just make a detour to come and have their photo, especially Indonesians, get their, photo <laughs> their photograph of the Hermit of the Nullarbor, and Japanese too, take photographs of Hermit of the Nullarbor. And then, of course, to make it more convenient, they'll put like toilets next to my cave and a gift, little gift shop. They have little photos of the Hermit of the Nullarbor and little models of the Hermit of the Nullarbor. <laughs> you know, I've even seen, please excuse the Indonesians, I love them all, but they started making these little dolls of me, very fat, very big glasses. <laughs> Some of you got those <laughs> little dolls. And it'd be even worse if I was a hermit at the Nullarbor. <laughs> so you look for solitude, but the world doesn't allow it. And I think that's really weird. And they come and take photographs of you, and never give me any peace. So I thought maybe I'll turn down being a hermit of Nullarbor and just being the abbot building on the monastery instead. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if that answered your question, but anyway. Oh yeah. Um, hello. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hello. No, it's not working. Um, hi, Ajay. I just want to ask the question in regard to uh, meditation. The clear mind—it always happens so randomly. Um, I, of, well, how I know is it's the fruitation of. Um, the ripe of the good karma that you have done during your daily conducts, how you treat other people. But it's happened so randomly. So how do we harvest more of that into our meditation? Okay, what happens is as you meditate more and more and more, you realize what the causes are for an unclear mind, which is wanting stuff. It's very hard not to want things. I'm just looking outside the window now. There's must have lots of wind outside because I can see the trees are just swaying and the, the leaves are moving. And that was Ajahn Chah's simile. A leaf only moves because of the wind. When the wind stops, the leaf doesn't stop straight away. It's got to stop for a while and then the leaf stops moving as well. And that's the clear mind, when your mind stops moving, the wind is like wanting something. Wanting things to be different, trying to get rid of things, judging, wanting, controlling. That's the problem. So as a monk, as a senior monk, after a while you learn just to sit down, close your eyes and don't want anything in the whole world. Even if it's, if it's unpleasant, you may have some pain or sickness you don't fight it, you just let it be. 
literally, and it disappears. This is, for any of you who have learned some traditional Buddhism from the suttas, you have this person, you know, like a being, who's always supposed to be disturbing meditators. It's called Mara. And every time, the only way to counter Mara is just to say, I know you, Mara. And then Mara has to uh, sink his head down, hunch his shoulders and just trudge away. The meditator knows me. Mara is never defeated by force, just defeated by knowledge, insight, understanding. So it's the understanding that you wanted something. So don't want anything in the whole world. Imagine that. Imagine, this is the one type of meditation I've often taught. Imagine you're already enlightened. Just imagine it. You don't want anything in the whole world. You don't need to go to work. You don't need to do anything at all. Everything was already, already supplied. Imagine you don't need anything in the whole world. Peace at last. Then you can get into deep enlightenment very quickly. Or deep meditation anyway. Okay, question over there. I, yes. Ajahn Brahm. Yeah, don't you think... No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> whenever we have a problem, you know, whenever we have a problem, we should not let our, use our emotions, you know, judge the problem, you know. Yeah. We should not be led by our emotions, no, that's not the correct one. No. We yeah. should sort of uh, take time, you know, it could be hours, it could be a day or, or you know, to calm down first, and then like the pond of clear water, we can, you know, you know? Yeah. then when, when we are calm, then we can see things more clearly, you know, and In then we can use that to judge things, you know. Indeed. Yeah. Sometimes it's very helpful just to pause, to wait, and then so many of the problems I should have dealt with, you just to have a nice meditate, have a rest, wake up in the morning, have your breakfast, then you find the, the problem has sorted itself out. A lot of times that's been the case, and sometimes I thought, I'm glad I never got involved, otherwise I'd have wasted my time when things sort themselves out in life. Can I just see someone here? Yeah, of course you can. That, don't you, that's a tendency for us human beings, no? When there's a problem, we quickly jump in, you know, we, we, we feel bad or down, we let our emotions take over, then we, you know, we yeah. we, that's where the suffering comes. The thing, no? yeah. But I would also <laughs> mention there that peace is an emotion, one of the most beautiful emotions. And that's after a while when you get to know peace, mm. it's not sort of like a nothing state. Mm one of the most beautiful, inspiring states in the whole world. Mm -hmm. That's why, if any of you look into the sky, uh, when, even tonight, I'm not quite sure what time the moon's coming up, when you see there's hardly anything there. Mm. Yep. That emptiness, mm. that peace, mm. stillness, mm. the absence of things. Mm -hmm. Peace is a beautiful emotion. Mm. Once you recognize it, it stirs you up gives you lots of joy. And don't you, other the suffering is the disturbing emotions, isn't it? That's the suffering, you know. 
suffering is once we have come down this thing, half the yeah. problem is gone already. Indeed. Mm. And suffering causes so many other emotions. Emotions of anger, revenge, uh, depression, thinking there's something wrong with you, you're suffering too much. No. Suffering has some benefits to it. If you go and see a doctor and he says, yes, you are suffering, you got COVID, you can take time off work and go on a retreat for seven days. Oh, you got, okay, make it the last question. Okay, thanks, Adan. This question is from Turkey. Could Turkey. you please tell people like me in Turkey going through this devastating earthquake how to approach life after the disaster? I am struggling mentally and need Buddhist wisdom. Thank you. Okay, the disaster of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Number one, uh, there's been a great loss of life there, but... Uh, when life does get destroyed like that, it does give opportunities for kindness and compassion. The number of people who even dig with their hands to try and f save just one life, even though so many lives have been lost, still it's worthwhile just trying to save one life. When that happens, it brings a lot of joy to people. So, the joy of just saving one life, even though so many pe other people have dead. Even just that just brings joy into this world. It's amazing just when we just look at the, in this particular case, the 998 bad bricks, and just see two good bricks, and it brings us hope. Disasters, tragedies have happened many times in our world. And what is the result of those disasters and tragedies? Sometimes we learn. We learn the beauty in such devastation. There can be so much kindness and joy. It actually makes us focus on what's really important in this world. Not just you know, continuing our life and watching TV and just amassing more wealth but those acts of kindness of trying to save somebody. There was, was one story I haven't told for a long time of a woman who had a year, she wanted to do something for the world. She volunteered for, you know, for something, I forget what the organization was, and they sent her to some country in Africa where there was a, a poverty caused by a drought and her job, she was given the job of going outside the camp every morning with a number of people she could let come in to survive, maybe 20, because that's all the medication and supplies which this camp had. So she could only allow, say, 20 people in, and there's maybe 100 outside every morning who just arrived the night before and she had to choose which 20 came in. And you think that was such a terrible job to do. But then she said the attitude of the people who came in, or was waiting outside, it was not like, take me, take me. It was, take her, take that little kid. 
it inspired her just with the the compassion and the selflessness of the people who were waiting outside. By saying, take him, don't take me, they knew they were going to die that day. They knew that's the best they could do. And she said that was one of the most inspiring years of her life. I remember the monk who told me this in England, then asked her, what are you doing now? She said, I'm, I'm working my usual job in the civil service in UK. What's that like? Now that really is depressing. We see things in a different way with tragedies. Tragedies will always happen, no matter where we are. We try to reduce them. When they do happen, they give us wonderful opportunities for compassion, for rising above the usual way of doing things and learning so much. See the beauty in these things, as well as the, the pain and tragedy. A lot of times people expect that these disasters and tragedies will never happen. There's something wrong when a tragedy happens. They try and blame somebody, the government, or blame God, or blame something. You can't. This is part of our world. It's always been this way. It's how we respond to those tragedies which is most important. And sometimes the kindness which you see in tragedies can be incredibly inspiring. Yeah, just remember little things which when the tsunami hit Sri Lanka and Thailand, not really much in Thailand, but in well, southern Thailand, yeah. When those tsunamis hit, it was sometimes amazing some of the stories which came out of that, the acts of kindness. I'll finish with just this simple story. There was a, uh, a Sri Lankan man would go every morning to a little lagoon on his way to work with a couple of slices of bread to feed the fish. And then one day a crocodile came and so he fed the crocodile a slice of bread too. And this crocodile just came every day from that time on to get a slice of bread from this guy. I don't know, crocodile or alligator, I might get that one wrong. But anyway, he went there one morning to feed the fish and his crocodile, and that was when the big wave came and he got swept out to sea. And he said he tried to hang on to, to a chair or something which was floating, but the current was so strong that it dragged him, the chair away from him. The next thing he saw was a log of wood. He grabbed onto that and he could hold onto it. And he was so incredibly confused. It's a true story. They didn't, it took him a while to realize all the other stuff was being swept out to sea. But the log of wood was going in the opposite direction, to the shore. And it got him so close to the shore he could jump off the log of wood and grab onto the bank and escape with his life. And then he looked at that log of wood, it wasn't a log of wood, it was his crocodile who saved him. Or it could be, for those of you who are cynical, the crocodile realized if that man dies there'll be no more bread. <laughs>
Okay, I think that's enough. I'm talking too much. Let's just pay respects to Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Tano <laughs>